Today, you are part of an important conversation about our shared future. The Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues explores a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to promote understanding and encourage debate across the university and the state of Nebraska. Since its inception in 1988, hundreds of distinguished speakers have challenged and inspired us, making this forum one of the preeminent speaker series in higher education. It all started when Ian Jack Thompson imagined a forum on global issues that would increase Nebraskans' understanding of cultures and events from around the world. Jack's perspective was influenced by his travels, his role in helping to found the United Nations, and his work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As president of the Cooper Foundation in Lincoln, Jack pledged substantial funding to the forum, and the University of Nebraska and Leeds Center for Performing Arts agreed to co-sponsor. Later, Jack and his wife Katie created the Thompson Family Fund to support the forum and other programs. Today, major support is provided by the Cooper Foundation, Leeds Center for Performing Arts, and University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We hope this talk sparks an exciting conversation among you. And now, on with the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. I'm Mike Zeleny with the university, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special Wilson Dialogue. Chuck and Linda created the dialogue to explore both sides of an issue important to Nebraska and the nation. Dr. Wilson, a retired cardiologist, served on the University of Nebraska Board of Regents for many years and also served as a medical officer in the U.S. Army. Linda served on the Lincoln City Council and the Public Building Commission. Additional support for tonight's event is provided by the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues, Leeds Center for Performing Arts, and the Cooper Foundation. We would also like to acknowledge the financial support and logistical support provided by the Department of Communication Studies and the Center for Civic Engagement. Please join me in thanking them. This evening, we would also like to extend a very special warm welcome to Chancellor Green and his wife, Jane, to all of the Nebraska Speech and Debate Team alumni, and to all the high school at speech and debate students and teachers who have traveled statewide to attend this event. We're thrilled that you're here. Known for their wit, humor, and eloquence, members of the United Kingdom's English-speaking union, the British National Debate Team, tour the United States each year, debating the best and brightest at our institutions of higher learning. The list of tour alumni is brilliant. It includes a British prime minister, the leader of the opposition, an archbishop of Canterbury, and many senior politicians, journalists, and business people. The tour is coordinated by the National Communications Association. The Nebraska speech and debate team consists of 46 students with majors ranging from communication to political science to computer science. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the pride of all Nebraska. In January, the team earned its sixth straight Big Ten championship, capturing nine of 12 individual titles. Let's give them a round of applause. The deliberation this evening will be moderated by Professor Aaron Duncan, director of the Nebraska Speech and Debate Team. 
After the debate, you will have the opportunity to vote for a winner and ask questions of the participants and moderator via Twitter using the hashtag EnThompsonForum. Also, ushers will be available in the aisles to collect your written questions and bring them to the stage. The title of this Wilson Dialogue is Regulation of Social Media Necessary to Protect Democracy. Now please join me in welcoming the British National Debate Team and the Nebraska Speech and Debate Team. Thank you. It is my distinct pleasure to serve as tonight's moderator for the debate between the University of Nebraska and the British National Debate Team. Please allow me to begin by introducing tonight's debaters. Tonight, representing the British National Debate Team, here for Queen and Country, are Richard Hunter and Rebecca Howarth. Richard Hunter is a native of Northern Ireland. He attended college at the University of St. Andrews, where he graduated in June with a degree in modern history. As a young man, he twice reached the finals of the Northern Ireland School's debating competition. He was also a finalist at the John Smith Memorial Mace Tournament. And in 2017, he was chosen as an adjudicator at the European University Debate Championships. His partner, Becky Howarth, studied economics in Germany at the University of Birmingham, where she graduated in 2015. During her career, she won five major debate tournaments, made the final round at 14 national and international debating competitions, including the German National Debating Championship in which she was debating in a foreign language. <laughs> Becky currently works in a management consulting role at PricewaterhouseCooper, the British national team. Their opponents for tonight's debate, representing the good life and the great state of Nebraska, are Aaron Sheehan and Colton White. Aaron Sheehan is a native of Omaha, Nebraska, and a senior at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she majors in political science and history, and has minors in communication studies, global studies, and humanitarian and human rights. She has won numerous state, national, and Big Ten awards. Last year, she ranked in the top 2% of the country in persuasive speaking and in the top 1% in communication analysis. Her partner for tonight's debate is Colton White, a native of Kearney, Nebraska, and a junior at UNL, majoring in English and communication secondary education. Colton is the president of the UNL debate team. Last year, he was the eighth best speaker in the nation at our national debate tournament and captained the team to a fifth overall national ranking. The topic for tonight's debate is regulation of social media necessary to protect democracy. The University of Nebraska will be affirming the resolution supporting regulation. The British national team will be opposing regulation. The format of tonight's debate is as follows. We will begin with four eight-minute speeches alternating between the University of Nebraska and the British national team, followed by two four-minute summary speeches. We ask that you can keep your phones on and keep tweeting at us at the Ian Thompson hashtag, uh, but please turn them to silent if you do. Please submit your questions and please join me in welcoming our first speaker from the University of Nebraska, Aaron Sheehan.
Hi everyone, Colton and I just want to start this debate by thanking the Wilson Dialogues and the Ian Thompson Forum for sponsoring the debate, as well as Becky and Richard for coming all the way to Nebraska to join us, and then everyone in the audience for coming tonight to watch the debate. We're here today to discuss the resolution, regulation of social media is necessary to protect democracy. I'll start by establishing the following definitions that we'll be using in the debate. Regulation is a governmental or non-governmental rule or directive. This isn't just about government regulations. We argue that companies can establish regulations too. Social media consists of websites and applications that enable users to create content or to participate in social networking. So sites like Facebook and Twitter. And protecting democracy entails ensuring the process of free and fair elections and the principles of individual representation and open deliberation. We contend that democracy is not just a process. It's a principle. And we support Question. regulation, not at this time. We can't reject regulation that will stop misinformation just because it's regulation. Therefore, we argue that we should regulate social media in order to make the sharing of opinions more transparent. We plan to achieve this in two parts. First, government regulation should ensure openness and transparency. Second, some responsibility for social media companies should be placed at the feet of social media companies themselves. First, government regulation needs to guarantee openness and transparency from social media companies. This means that these companies need to open up the books to the government about how their algorithms, trending topics, and ad revenue work. Social media algorithms are really confusing. They act like a magic formula designed to deliver the best content first. We don't know exactly how these algorithms work, but we know that they prioritize revenue over truth. The algorithms social media companies use are designed to prioritize the user's attention for as long as possible by delivering information that the user's likes. I like these algorithms when they give me ads for garlic bread recipes and cat videos. <laughs> but these algorithms aren't so great when they organize us into continuously reinforced echo chambers that are prime for exploitation. Before, fake news was tabloids at the grocery store checkout line. Now, social media algorithms deliver fake articles, like the Pope endorsing Donald Trump directly to those who are prone to believing the headline. Nearly 140 million entirely false articles were shared on Facebook alone in the three months leading up to the 2016 election. This isn't about partisanship. These fake articles contain objectively misleading information, deceiving Americans on both sides of the political spectrum. Opening these algorithms to a third party that isn't interested in profit could alter the way that content and fake news is delivered to readers. The same thing has happened with trending topics on sites like Question. Facebook and Twitter. Yes? Um, what kind of enforcement mechanisms is the government going to use to enforce these regulations? So we hope that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, would have oversight in the same way that they have oversight over things like internet and television, which is something that I'll get to later in the speech. So moving on, the same thing has happened with trending topics on sites like Facebook and Twitter. So following the 2016 election, Facebook admitted themselves that they had over 270 million accounts that were fake, significantly more than they thought. And on Twitter, over 48 million accounts were also fake. These fake accounts known as bots were used during the 2016 election to manipulate trending topics. We need more transparency about why certain things are popular. Trending topics are important, 
When information is trending, it reaches new and large audiences, and Google searches for the topic increases. If we want social media to function as a transparent and open space for the sharing of opinions, the topics must be what real people are actually talking about. Cat videos. <laughs> Finally, social media revenue from advertisements needs to be more transparent. Since 2011, Facebook has asked the Federal Election Commission, the agency that regulates campaign finance, for blanket exemptions from political advertising disclosure rules. These are the types of formal disclosures you see on political ads on TV, radio, or print, informing you of who purchased the ad and if it's affiliated with a candidate. Yet due to Facebook lobbying, these, advertise these rules don't apply online, allowing social media companies to bring in a lot of money. We've since learned that in the 2016 election, accounts affiliated with Russia spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on targeted ads before the election. The funding sources of these ads should have been disclosed. The FEC needs to accept that Facebook is more than a social media site. It's a media company, and these ads need to be transparent. Next, some responsibility for social media companies should be placed at the feet of social media companies themselves. Both companies and us as users need to take an active role to fix the problems like fake news and deceptive ads. We all need to take action. If Ted Cruz's social media struggles have taught us anything, sometimes the Senate can't manage their own accounts, so they probably shouldn't have full control over ours. Social media has already proven they can control content. It's just a matter of if they do it for good or for bad. And we hope that they do it for good. First. Social media companies should identify and eliminate fake accounts. Bots on social media can gain a big following. During the 2016 election, a Russian-backed Twitter account claiming to be the Tennessee GOP gained over 150,000 followers. During its tenure, it was retweeted by Kellyanne Conway and Donald Trump Jr. The real Tennessee GOP account only had 13,000 followers. Other fake accounts targeted African-American women, telling them they could vote from home on election day and giving them a completely fake number to use. Fake Twitter accounts tweeted over 1.4 million times in the span of just over two months. Despite these fake accounts being reported many times, they weren't removed by Twitter. Social media can't be an open space for the sharing of ideas if certain vulnerable groups are targeted with false information. Social media must direct more resources to removing fake accounts and tagging them as suspicious. Additionally, we hope for a transparent system of flagging news articles that involves user participation. We know that fake news is widespread and it causes a lot of confusion. 64% of Americans say fake news causes them a lot of confusion about basic facts about politics and current events. That's a huge problem and social media companies need to be accountable. We can all help with this. We hope for a system in which social media sites tag the location of origin for articles and allow users to tag information as reliable or not. From there, disputed information can be tagged as such until fact checkers have the opportunity to evaluate. Giving users transparent and clear information can eliminate some of the issues we experience relating to fake news. We are arguing in favor of the resolution regulation of social media is necessary to protect democracy, not to regulate free speech but instead to allow social media to become a more transparent platform. Social media has given every individual the power to act as a journalist and an advocate. 
And with this power comes a new set of responsibilities. Regulation allows just this, a responsible and equitable exchange of information. Therefore, I urge you all to support the affirmative. Before I start my speech, I'd just like to thank everybody who's made this evening possible. We're thousands of miles away from home, and we feel like we have so many adopted friends um, from across the pond. So thank you, honestly, so much for having us here tonight. Um, so social media provides a really unique platform, and there's a couple of benefits of this. The first benefit is, is, is entertainment. So if anybody's ever seen the YouTube video, Charlie Bit My Finger, if you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend. The second benefit is in terms of news, right? So a lot of people log on to Facebook and they get a load of diverse sources of information and different viewpoints. And we hear this algorithm touched on by the other side. We think actually the way that your news feed works is that you um, see content from people that you're friends with and note that typically we can be friends with people who have different views that we have, right? Or say, if I, if I really love garlic bread recipes, right, I can upvote garlic bread recipes and still see news articles from different perspectives, things that I never thought about before. We think that social media has revolutionized the free and open exchange of ideas. I think if you wake up in Virginia this morning, you would have a reminder saying, have you voted yet in the election? Um, you know, we, he we hear these arguments about how social media has been really disempowering for minority groups, but actually we think it's a huge huge tool of empowerment to encourage people to engage politically. We think that's really, really valuable. Question. Two points from you, uh, I'll take you later, two points from you inside opposition today. Firstly, how the social media, when it is unregulated, is a necessary tool to empower people in a democracy. And secondly, how regulation excludes a healthy debate in a democracy. But first of all, some responses to what we've heard um, from the other side. So, um, note we had this, this idea of um, algorithms, prioritize revenue over truth. I say point one, try and push past the rhetoric behind this point, right? And see algorithms are complex, they work as explained. And if this team is trying to solve echo chambers as they exist, they have a lot more work to do. No, social media doesn't create echo chambers insofar as we like to speak to people whose views agree with our own. We do that in real life anyway. But social media allows us to connect, to have issues going viral that we've never heard of before and actually encourages more exchange of ideas. Um, then they say that the company should be establishing regulation themselves, but we think we've seen an organic development of processes um, to push out some of the problems that they talk about, right, which reflects the development of social media as a, as a platform and its burgeoning ma maturity. So uh, the trending news icon on the top right of your screen, they've started now only having um, articles trend that are from reputable news sources, moving away from this idea of fake news. Note that fake news has basically become a catchphrase, like a superhero catchphrase that we say right? Actually, fake news can be used as a tool from people who are in power to delegitimize news websites that say or challenge issues that the administration isn't comfortable with. We think it's important that we're critical about this concept and that we challenge um, this where it appears. We get the example of saying, you know, previously you would um, have fake news in a grocery store, but now you have it online. Well, we say actually having it online is better because you can instantaneously call it out, whereas in conventional media, you'd have an apology um, on page 79 of next 
week's um, edition, right? Then we get this idea that um, transparency is super important and actually the social media tipped the balance of the election recently. We say, A, there is no empirical evidence that it changed the outcome of the election. There are a number of legitimate concerns as to why certain people will have voted for different candidates. That, that issue hasn't been resolved. Note that also we have more um, optimism about people's ability to critically discern. So note there's loads of programs in high schools and colleges across the country um, teaching people how to see what's fake news and what's not. Note you have more independent fact-checking agencies that are able to call that out on the system. We think that, that fake news can sometimes be used as a tool for distraction, and it's really important that that doesn't drive these policy decisions. Point one, why un unregulated social media is so important to empower people. We think that democracy is about expressing your ideas and groups expressing their values and their priorities, but we can only express our opinions on the infrastructure that we're provided. When you don't have social media, when you don't have a free social media, people have to take their voices elsewhere. Right? So when you have the Black Lives Matter group who want to spread awareness of police brutality, excuse me, police brutality, social media, when it's not regulated, is a powerful way that they control their own story and tell of their own troubles with their own voices so they can share a video so that it can go viral and so that they can galvanize support for their political issue. Question. Um, I'll take you at the end of this point. Um, and without social media, you get called out for being unpatriotic, for you know the protect and serve mentality of the police force. We think that um, you need a critical mass for these groups to gain progress, and that it's uniquely visceral on social media when you're able to share these videos. We think that regulation is necessarily always going to be political, as I'll explain in my second point. And when you don't have regulation on social media, you give these people a voice, right? You let them communicate directly to other citizens where conventional media will shut, shut them out. Like it's really important in a democracy that we have a balance of different ideas. So even if it's not an opinion that you agree with, it's important to have that counterbalance. And social media being free and open for everybody to use it, for nobody to have a rule book and say what's allowed and what's not allowed, is it really important for these people to get their points of view across. That matters, A, for the people who are in these political groups who want to get their points of view across, but B, for the average citizen who needs to inform themselves about what matters in society and about the dignity and, and the democracy of their society. I'll take your question, yes. Yes. So how are groups like Black Lives Matter supposed to benefit from social media when fake news articles about them are being spread and lies being perpetuated? So people are capable of critical thought. As I said in my rebuttal, there are a number of programs helping people discern with what's fake news and what's not. Um, there's also multiple different sources that you have on social media that can call out instantaneously when something is incorrect, right? Note the comparison is having to go to conventional media where there's typically racist reporting of crimes, right? When you have a terrorist incident with somebody who's white or somebody who's a person of color, it's reported on in different ways. And we think social media is really important for them to get their views across directly. Secondly, I'm going to talk to you about regulation. So it's very, very difficult to pick any issue which is not political or politicized, i.e. is impacting people's lives. And we think the criteria for what's described as fake news is necessarily going to vary depending on the priorities of the current administration. Note the tendency to term something fake news if it's an inconvenient challenge um, to, to current administration. We think that um, not having regulation is really important to ensure this free exchange of ideas. And actually, um, it, 
it's an important mechanism of accountability to make sure that the government is listening to everybody, even when those views are inconvenient. So the example that we would draw to is recently Google um, tried out some different algorithms as to how their search engines work, and they, they introduced a change in the algorithm that was due to um, remove anything that was deemed offensive, downright false, or blatantly misleading. And studies have shown that the conversion rate to websites that contained critique of, um, of wars that America was engaging with abroad had fallen by 70%. I think that these opinions, whether you agree with them or not, are a fundamental part of a healthy democracy, and that governments will always have an incentive to set up a system which downplays elements of policy that are inconvenient to them and that are polling worse and are less likely to get their senior politicians re-elected. Um, and we think that these inconvenient topics uniquely come out in social media, and so regulation would stifle them. This is even more important when you think about countries that claim to be democracies, but actually actively infringe on press freedoms. So places like Turkey and Russia that, that claim to be democracies but would love to use this as a tool to push down dissenting voices and stop people from claiming um, claiming what they need in terms of political change. Look, this is really important for groups who experience structural violence from the government, and this is so important for the average voter. We think regulation cannot work in the democracy that we have today. Very proud to oppose. Thank you. So before I begin, I would like to extend the thanks that we've seen so far. First to the institutions that made this possible, such as the Ian Thompson Forum, the Wilson Dialogue, the UNL Department of Communication Studies, and the LEAD Center in which we are now. I would also like to extend the thanks again to Becky and Richard for coming all this way to debate us, and again to all of you for being here to hear this debate. So to begin, the American founding father and more recently Broadway rapper Alexander Hamilton once stated, unless your government is respectable, foreigners will invade your rights. Even to observe neutrality, you must have a strong government. Just as Hamilton recognized the role of government in preserving democracy, we support regulating social media to preserve democracy and preserve truth. I would like to highlight three main points that have emerged from the debate so far. The first of which, there is a clear difference between regulation and censorship. The regulations that Aaron and I propose are designed to increase transparency. It's not about regulating what people can say, it's about regulating what companies can hide and what different organizations like the Kremlin are able to hide from the American people. We can see this in how American broadcasting laws work. So for example, if there are two political candidates going against each other in the American political system and they take out advertisements on radio or they go on to debate on radio, under US broadcasting law, they need to have equal access to time. We can see how this is really important because if one side gets 10 minutes and the other side only gets one, that's not a fair dialogue. Aaron and I would like to take this opportunity to buy up all of our opponents' speech time. 
Another example is how underneath current law, we need to disclose when, who paid for certain television ads. So for example, if the, a partisan organization pays for a TV ad, we should be able to know. That doesn't mean that that ad shouldn't run, but just that we should have an open deliberation and discussion about whether or not that's credible or whether or not we can trust it. For example, I hear the Brits are being founded by Facebook for this event. Basically, we just need to update our laws for democracy in the 21st century. Our opponents may start to frame this debate as tyranny is just around the corner if we let administrations get control of how we handle our democracy. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying that tyranny is more likely around the corner when we don't have the information that's necessary. I will take your question. So can you respond to the fact that you claim that we should regulate social media like conventional media, but in conventional media, the broadcaster will choose which programs are run, whereas social media has to be different because users from the ground up will determine what content is projected? You seem to have an idea that social media companies are a completely neutral platform, but what we're saying is that they aren't necessarily so. For example, we don't know how the algorithms work insofar as what material we see. These are not a neutral platform. That's what Facebook, Twitter, and other social media companies are saying, but we don't know if that's entirely true. So our, our, our opponents are saying that there can be political, um, politicized regulation and that this criteria can be bad. We agree, which is why we're saying that we should make things more transparent instead. So moving on to our second point, regulating social media can help move us more to, toward a more truthful society. The lifeblood of democracy is free and open information. In, the, toward, in today's social media, truth is being replaced with lies. This isn't a left or a right issue in terms of our political spectrum. It's a truth or falsity issue. And that is how you should think about the debate today. According to the Washington Post and other media outlets, over 150 million Americans were reached by Russian documents during this past election. That is more than the total number of people who voted, period. Now, we don't know for sure how many people were persuaded by one message or another, but we know that this is influencing our elections. So our opponents so far in this debate have come up with the notion that social media, like Facebook and Twitter, is a great place to voice political discussions and debate. What is your secret? <laughs> I have not had a single good political discussion on Facebook. <laughs> In fact, most of the time it's just someone saying, what is this curly-headed dude yelling about? What is his problem? That's the kind of political discussion that happens on Facebook. Additionally, while they may say that, sure, we may associate with people from our side of the political spectrum, how Facebook currently operates is if you like a page, that spreads fake news or supports one side of a political issue, you're more likely to see other things that support that viewpoint as well. That's the key difference between debating within social media and debating within real life, where you have to engage people and it's not like suddenly you talk to someone with a political viewpoint and 10 more of those people suddenly exist out of thin air. 
but that's what social media does. And they bring up the example of Black Lives Matter. However, we can see how these organizations can be just as harmed by social media or any left or right political issue when we can see fake articles spreading about those organizations. How, are, how is someone supposed to be open to a new political idea when there are fake news articles being shared about them that say that this group promotes violence in a way in which they did not, or any other number of fabrications that can occur? We would like to show how regulating social media is the only way to move toward a more truthful society and therefore a more deliberative democracy. Lastly, we would like to point out that in the status quo, social media companies can willfully control our democracy. As Aaron explained in the first speech, regulation should open the books of social media companies. Social media companies are powerful. Only a few key players such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter hold all of the cards. They are not the innocent players in our society. Our opponents talk about sources and how we need to be able to discuss whether or not, uh, or that people are always able to determine whether or not a source is credible or not credible. While we can certainly say that people have critical thinking skills and that we should encourage this, this is not what social media does. As we pointed out in the last speech, we are more likely to be able to be confused about what sources are saying. That's what Aaron proposed in our first speech. Social media actually increases the confusion over sources. It muddies the waters of the debate. It doesn't clarify them, which is why we need to have social media companies take their role seriously in our society and take down fake accounts that are saying that for example, Donald Trump was endorsed by the Pope, or that um, Hillary Clinton has a kill list, or any other number of certain examples that we have from this last um, organization. So to close, as Thomas Jefferson, another Broadway star, once stated, the end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of moneyed corporations. While Jefferson probably didn't say that on Twitter, we can see that unchecked social media can be a threat to democracy in the United States and abroad. In order to move towards a more truthful society, we urge you to support the affirmative. So finally, as the fourth speaker, I would like to echo all of the thanks <laughs> that have been given so far. I know it's very repetitive, but me and Becky, as we've come here, have definitely felt like honorary corn huskers. Thank you very much. Um, I will not, as a British person with a funny accent, be quoting any founding fathers in this speech. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but as a history student, I am aware of certain historical milestones. And I can't help but escape the knowledge that 500 years and one week ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, starting what was known as the European Reformation, which changed the face of Europe forever. He did that, and his teachings reached a wide audience, 
because he used the printing press. He was able to create pamphlets and documents that were circulated widely and people read them who hadn't been exposed to this material before. And it, it all happened because of this new and disruptive technology. We've seen this recurring throughout history. Anytime there is a significant technologi technological innovation in the way that people consume information, people use it for political purposes. It happened during the 1970s in Iran where people were smuggling in cassette tapes of addresses by Atollah Khomeini, which led to the overthrow of the Shah. It happened in the late 1980s in Eastern Europe when people were smuggling fax machines and photocopiers into the country so that they could distribute anti-Soviet democracy propaganda and it happened on after the revolution of social media when we saw during the Arab Spring Twitter and Facebook and YouTube used to mobilize thousands hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets we think that disruptive technologies are always used by those who have subversive ideas that are not recognized as important or valuable by the state for social and political change we think that the ability to limit and control those technologies about how people use them and the way in which they use them and the things that they say when using them. The ability to do that has always been used by those who hold political power to limit free speech and to maintain their hold on political and social power. We believe on side opposition that the state should never have the ability to do that. That regulation of social media should be something that is left to the consumers of social media and the companies that run that. And we think that that will always be far more healthy and far more protective of democracy that we hold to be so valuable. So some points of rebuilding of what Becky said, some rebuttal to their speech, and then a little constructive material of my own. So firstly note that there was very little actual rebuttal given to Becky's material about how social media furthers participation and empowerment. What we got out of the last speech was that simply the assertion that there are never any good political discussions on Facebook. I might suggest the previous speaker that maybe he may need to talk with better people on social media. Um, he may need to seek out spaces in which those, um, those conversations happen. But I think also importantly, and this came up in, in Becky's speech as well, but we see how autocracies have this tendency to limit freedom of speech. Countries like Turkey, countries like Russia, they claim to be democracies and to have free and fair elections, but they use their control of information to say that uh, certain things are fake, certain things didn't happen or are not real and control the narrative. We see that in China where simply posting on social media anything to do with Tiananmen Square and 1989 will get you a visit from the police for committing some kind of crime against the state. We think that we don't think that this will happen tomorrow in America if this, if this regulation passes, but we think that it is significant harm and that the state is always likely to take more control that is necessary. Question. No, thank you. They also say that regulation is not censorship, that they are not being stopping people from saying things. You're preventing what people hide away, right? We think that when you do that, you are regulating what people say. The, as soon as these regulation exists, someone in the government is going to be trusted to draw the line as to where fake news ends and where political speech begins, right? What we're saying is that we do not trust the government not just to draw that line, but we don't trust the government to move that line in a way that will suit them. We also hear this comparison to television and radio, right? We importantly bring you the rebuttal that 
social media is participatory. It is not just the New York Times that defines what is on your Facebook newsfeed. It is what you say and your friends say. It's the comments on articles. It's uh, the, the, the debate that goes on within those comment sections. We do think that the, it is a well-known principle that you cannot regulate um, people's thoughts. You cannot regulate the conclusions that people come to based on information. We don't think it would be legitimate for the state to do that. And we think that when the state is going to find it very difficult to distinguish between what is media and what is people's thoughts, they shouldn't regulate. They then say that we're going to have user participation and that's going to make this system very effective, right? We think that either you will have a system where very few users flag things as fake news, in which case you won't get the, it won't be widespread enough to be effective because not enough articles will be flagged by users and you won't catch everything, or you'll have everyone acting as their own censor. And we think that that would be terrible because users are horrifically unreliable. We think that there are people who will hear Alex Jones telling them that they're poisoning the water, that the globalist agenda is coming to further something that is a threat to them and conveniently sell them some water filters and brain pills on the side. We think that some people will think that he is reliable and will flag anything that contradicts him as unreliable, even though it is demonstrably false. We think that you will get a mess and you will not solve the problem. Why th we think that the solution to this problem is, is found in the actions of the technology companies themselves. Because, to coin a phrase, what is Facebook but its people? Without consumers and without users, Facebook is nothing. We think that Facebook then finds that it has an incentive to respond rapidly because any bad PR, any accusation that is peddling fake information could impact its stock price, right? And that's all Facebook really cares about. We think that when company gets these bad reactions, they have to react quit quickly. See how quickly Reddit ended up d excluding um, hateful subreddits when it became clear that there was a massive media storm about them doing so. We also think companies can respond flexibly and that companies have the ability to rapidly hire people from a wide variety of backgrounds to help them do this. Note how Facebook coordinated with already existing political fact-checking organizations, whereas governments take longer to do things and have more layers of bureaucracy and more strange incentives um, to, to respond to this. We also think that at the moment the government gets involved, the state has asymmetric power. The state has the ability to change change laws as quickly as it wants, to reinterpret laws because it has the power of the law and order system. It has the power, even if it doesn't get involved through the justice system, it has the power to, um, to change how much tax these companies pay, to um, threaten them with all sorts of things. We think that once they have that power and once they get involved Question. with these discussions, they will abuse that power and do it. Um, yes, I will take you. So why aren't we living in a dictatorship after we passed broadcasting laws? So uh, as we've said, broadcasting laws are not similar to social media in that um, setting up a massive television broadcasting aerial is very difficult and opening a Facebook account is very easy. We think that the government therefore regulates the electromagnetic spectrum on what you can broadcast, but it cannot regulate the internet because there is no meaningful difference between what the Washington Post posts on the internet and what you post on the internet. We think, um, we think that's, that's the difference there and that's why television and radio wasn't necessarily as toxic. But as we also said, this stuff about echo chambers is hardly new. We think that throughout history, you have always been likely to have the political opinions of the people in your community, of the people who have, of your age group, of the people of your job, right? We think that um, this, this problem did not come out of thin air. In closing, I would simply say that in the United Kingdom, 
we do not have a First Amendment. We do not have a constitution that we can rely on that says we are guaranteed the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom to petition grievances. Um, and that means that we cannot challenge things that we believe to be unconstitutional as easily as people in the United States. We do not, um, the government has far more power over us as individual citizens than we do. And this means that um, the ability, the government has the ability to surveil us and has much more surveillance and that was passed through government and did not ha was completely legal and was waved through without much protest. You in the United States have that. Um, I believe that you should treasure it and I believe that you should not let some heavy-handed regulation as a, um, as a immediate response to one very small problem to take that freedom of speech away. I would urge you to be on side negative. Thank you. This debate today has been full of a lot of great ideas and interesting examples, but we believe on the affirmative side that it comes down to three important questions. How does democracy thrive without an informed populace? Are you truly free if you're kept in the dark? And what is the best way to promote equitable discourse? We are standing in favor of equitability, transparency, and responsibility. First, we think that all ideas should be equal. Ideas that aren't fake news. And fake news is a real thing. Ideas that are objectively false. Things like Donald Trump was endorsed by the Pope. This isn't partisan, it's not true. The Brits think that everything is equal on our social media platforms. I value the idea of equality on social media platforms. But things aren't equal on our social media platforms when we know nothing about our algorithms or why certain topics are trending, this is why regulation is necessary. We aren't regulating content like the British would like to suggest or shutting users who are actually spreading real information off of internet sites. We're shutting out fake accounts that are using the internet to manipulate American citizens. Next, we believe that the internet should be a space with transparency. We should know who is behind advertisements and fake news articles. Right now, we don't on sites like Facebook. This is what we're talking about when we discuss things like the FEC regulations. They don't apply to Facebook advertisements, and they should. This has nothing to do with whether you're choosing to participate in Facebook or you're not. An advertisement is content you're exposed to regardless of the platform and you should know who paid for it and where it's coming from. How can you have optimism about people's ability to tell if something is fake when people were targeted by fake Twitter accounts? African-American women who were told they could vote by home on election day and they believed it. I'm optimistic about people's ability to discuss information in a civic engagement form like this, but I'm not optimistic about people's ability to discern what's fake and what's not when it's already increasingly difficult for people to do so. This is again why we think regulation is important. And finally, we think that there needs to be responsibility on both behalf of the government and social media companies. At this point, it seems like both us and the British are arguing the same thing. We both want social media to do a better job of self-regulating. 
We don't want regulation that limits speech. We don't want political regulation. And we don't want to eliminate specifically partisan information. This is about targeting fake information. We're not trying to push down the disenfranchised. We already regulate speech in this country. It's about drawing the line of where we regulate speech, where it's appropriate to do so. They want to draw the line in favor of absolute speech, a way that allows us to be misinformed by Twitter accounts, by Russians, and other individuals that want to manipulate our elections. I want to draw the line in a way that allows us to actually have equitable and transparent social media platforms. This debate is easy. The British have oversimplified how social media works and how regulation works. If you support ideas like equitability, transparency, and responsibility, you will support the affirmative. Thank you. In a number of ways, this is a really nice debate because both sides want to achieve the same thing. We want a great democracy, we want transparency, we want good politi political discussion, and we want the truth to get out. But we think we achieve it in different ways. So I'm going to explain why I think that our side has won this debate. First idea that I really want to challenge is that we get the concept of equitability from the opposite side. And we think this is really problematic in a social media context, right? Because to get e equality of ideas on social media, you would literally have to regulate and say, 10 people have to post about cat videos, 10 people have to post about dog videos, right? We think that ignores the way that social media works in that content is created by individual users and there's a upvoting, downvoting system of people who enjoy different ideas moving them upwards in the news feeds, right? And we get the idea that the, the advertising in particular is harmful because it targets people um, and means that they make bad decisions, as they're termed. But this, I really think this misunderstands how people engage with content, right? Because I get Facebook ads for like fancy cheese toasty makers and yoga retreats in Bali, but I don't go and spend my hard-earned money on it, right? We're all exposed to huge amounts of commercial advertising, but we're not standing here saying that we have a problem about how heavily influenced by this we are because we believe that we have an ability to think for ourselves. And it's a real leap of logic, right? It's true that Russia created a lot of content. It's true that Donald Trump won the election but there's a huge leap of logic to say that is the only reason or that was a significant driver in why that happened. We don't think they fulfilled their burden on that side of proving it. Um, we don't think the side proposition have achieved their goals. In fact, we think they make democracy worse. So the, the idea of transparency. So they say that companies use these mysterious algorithms, which are really harmful because it allows an unequal platform of ideas. But we say when you give it to the government to write the rule book of what are the ideas that are allowed, that necessarily leads to censorship, right? So what happens when, if the government decides that climate change is not scientifically robust enough and that's considered fake news, right? Or if Black Lives Matters is considered to be an extremist terrorist organization whose ideas shouldn't be propagated across the platform, right? They don't achieve transparency, they just shift power to a body which won't be open, which doesn't give detailed explanations of their reasoning and in fact concentrates power in a small number of people. They talk about the value of discussion um, and they say, you know, what's the secret to having better discussions on Facebook? Sure, there is a part of Facebook which is purely like videos of dogs being forced into baths, which is really funny by the way, you should check it out. 
But the thing is, right, sure, every now and then we'll unfollow someone who has an opinion that we disagree with, but every now and then we will pick our battles too, right? Or we will start having a conversation and challenge those ideas. We think you get so much more interaction on social media. Then this, this idea of truth, right, and fake news, which I honestly think is a phrase that people are obsessed about in this country. Um, and then we get this concept of the Pope, right, and that the Pope supporting Trump gave him massive support. Well, I really don't understand what the marginal impact of that article was compared to a photo of Donald Trump stood next to the Pope, right? Like, the implicit impact of that, the, the marginal impact of that, I think, is really, really small. But also, as I was saying about the commercial advertising, you know, it, it assumes that we are brainless voters who can't discern information. We're being trained to identify this stuff. We have independent fact-checking organisations. And we think it's really harmful when you let the definition be driven by the government. Look, Richard gave a lot of really important material on countries that would like to use this to impose their asymmetric power onto the population. We don't think that was responded to. We, they, these tried, this team tried to claim that minorities are let down by fake news, but we actually don't think that's as big a problem um, as they claim it is. We think that social media is so unique in that you can co-create content, so you're not just watching a TV show and then thinking to yourself, you know, oh, what do I think in reflection to this piece? You co-create the material and you share that with other people and any regulation of social media is going to shut people out from that contribution and for some people it's the only voice that they can have that's why we are so opposed to this regulation thank you for the debate today it's been fantastic proud to oppose Thank you to both teams for an excellent debate. <laughs> it has become commonplace to say that debate, discussion, and dialogue are dying in the modern American democracy. But to that I would say, tonight, here in Lincoln, Nebraska, on the campus of the University of Nebraska, those values are alive and well. And they are alive and well precisely because we have such a wonderful audience here and online. Because at a certain point, it's not public speaking without the public. And now we need your help. We need you to help us decide who won tonight's war of word, wit, and wisdom. So I'm going to ask you, uh, for those of you who are live in the audience here, when I announce each team, if you think they did the best job of debating tonight, because we ask that you decide not what you came in with is your political ideas, but who you thought best represented their positions in the debate, to clap, to cheer, to stomp your feet, to loudly shout, Nebraska, or whichever team <laughs> you think won tonight's debate, because both teams did a great job. So, if you thought the best debating was done by the affirmative University of Nebraska team, please clap and cheer. And if you thought the best debating was done by noted Iowa Hawkeye fans. <laughs> ah, the British national team. 
I don't know. I don't know, Vice Chancellor. That might be that might be too close to call. <laughs> a great job by everybody. That. So I think at this point uh, we'll declare the winner to be everyone who participated tonight, and to open it up for some wonderful uh, questions and answers. Well and diplomatically stated, Dr. Duncan. At this time, the debaters and moderators will take questions from the audience. You may submit questions again using the hashtag. Twitter hashtag Ian Thompson Forum, or write your questions on note cards provided by the ushers. Our first question, as tradition has, comes from the Ian Thompson International Scholars. We'll start with the British team. What are your thoughts on how world leaders should or should not use social media? Uh, so, um, I was actually remarking as we were walking over to this event that uh, a seismic change has taken place that um, has the potential to forever alter over the next few months um, world and international relations. And that is that Twitter has actually doubled its character limit um, from 140 to 280 characters. So that gives world leaders twice as much space. Um, I would say that I'm not sure there's one way to use social media. Um, I think it's going to be, it's always going to be. Um, unique to the politician and the, what their message is and the way they want to connect with their, their supporters. Um, what I would say is that I'm trying to be diplomatic as possible. Um, there are ways in which you can communicate um, which are positive and are, make you unite all of, a, all of your country and make you act like a representative of your country and something that your country can be proud of. Um, I would prefer a world in which every world leader represented that at all times. All right, for the Nebraska team, what is the primary motivation behind the spread of fake news? Is it economic, maybe ideological? Um, so I would say that ideological is a big thing. So especially when we look to our past election, a lot of that fake news was targeted towards specific groups, and there were very clear motivations. So the example that I cited a lot in the debate was targeting African-American women, telling them that they could vote from home on election day, and giving them a phone number that they could text to vote from. Um, we know that African-American women are often a reliable voting base for the Democratic Party, so telling these women that they can vote from home, aka they're not going to be able to vote, that clearly to me has ideological drive behind it. Yeah, and I think it sometimes depends upon where the source of it was from because certainly there are a lot of ideological reasons like Aaron just pointed out, but there are also the examples of her, um, like the Hungarian teens who made fake news accounts so that they could get the you know, ad revenue from their website. I mean, sure, they might be entrepreneurial, but maybe try to find a better way, kids, of going about that. So it just really depends on, on the context. But either way, when like we should be looking at the effects of it is, um, no matter what the intentions behind it were. All right, thank you. From our uh, Twitter feed this evening, um, Richard and Becky, in what ways would basic freedoms be hurt if social media were regulated? 
I think it's I think it speaks to the kind of content that we were just talking about in the the context of the debate. It's about expressing your ideas and your opinions. And I think social media is just another way for people to get their voices heard. And I think it is a really important way for people who who feel shut out of conventional media, whether that's young people or minorities. Um, and so I think it is quite a dangerous route to go down when you start developing a criteria for what's allowed and what's disallowed um, because typically you don't have a lot of transparency with how those those criteria are developed Um, so it's 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 about people having a voice and having an impact on political discussion all right to the nebraska team how do you protect the intellectual property of social media companies when disclosing their algorithm rhythms So I think that maybe just patents or other traditional means. I mean, when Apple releases an iPhone, it's not all of a sudden the worry of Apple's not going to have any money because everyone else creates an iPhone now. I think the algorithms go similar ways, um, at least from my understanding, is we can have ways of preserving that intellectual property in the same way we've preserved other types of intellectual property. All right, to the British team, our Twitter followers want to know, what is a toasty? <laughs> so, I, yeah, as the grilled cheese expert in this team, as a vegetarian tra- traveling around the States, I've had many grilled cheeses. It's basically just like a, a toasted sandwich. So like a toasty is, yeah, a toasted sandwich. So I think you call it grilled cheese. I don't know what you would call it if it didn't have cheese in it. It'd be like a, a grilled um, tomato. No, the, I, I've seen there's there's much controversy about this in certain sectors of the internet. Is that if it's if it's just cheese, then it's a grilled cheese. But if it has other ingredients, then it's a melt. So in the toasty covers both. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is like galaxy. I feel reassured because that's obviously why no one laughed at my toasty joke. <laughs> there seriously were a number of questions. Uh, once again, to the British team, um, tell us a little bit more about the British debate team. Yeah, so um, this program uh, has been running since 1922, um, and it's run by a charity called the English Speaking Union based in Dartmouth House in London. Um, they run a variety of programs where they organize debate tournaments and they go into high schools and run debate programs and um, help people get excited about debate and discourse. Um, the first tour in 1922, as we were informed, uh, the people going were just given a boat ticket, a letter guaranteeing them uh, accommodation and the name of the person they had to meet. And they were just told, good luck, um, have fun. Um, we get a lot more support than that. So the English speaking union um, sorted out all our flights and they partner with the National Communication Association's Committee for International Discussion and Debate, which is the American end, which coordinates with all the various universities that host us. Um, And this is stop number 18 out of 21. Um, We've been going for about six and a half weeks. Um, So yeah, that's sort of the potted history of the tour. All right, thank you and congratulations to the Nebraska team. What are your underlying goals and purpose for becoming involved in debate? My what? Your underlying goals or oh, purpose? Underlying goals. I thought you said my other life goals. <laughs> I was like, let's not go there right now. <laughs> um, underlying goals. So I talked about this in the pre event. I actually completely joined high school speech completely by accident. Um, I didn't know what, it was called forensics at my high school. I didn't really know what that was, and I just signed up for the class. Um, but after I joined, it turned out being 
really, really interesting and I really enjoyed it. And then when I came to college, I really, I knew I was coming to the university. So the thought of being on the speech team and having something to do that was academically stimulating sounded appealing. And I had a lot of friends that I knew on the team. So that was another push towards it. Yeah, mostly it's because I'm really nerdy, yeah. but <laughs> that too. <laughs> there's also, it's a creative outlet in terms of why I continue competing, but as the years progress from here on out, mostly it's going to shift towards educating other people in speech and debate, and not only just about that, but about the world and making sure that it gets passed on to other people who can maybe get those opportunities as well. All right, well, congratulations to each of you. Now back to our topic at hand. Uh, to the British, if we don't regulate social media in any way, where do we draw the line? Would we allow Twitter to promote a tweet that encourages violence as long as it was paid for and disclosed? Um, so, I, well, you know. I mean, this is probably the point in the discussion where I would take off my veil of the side of the debate that I'm on and answer it in a genuine way. So in this format, you don't pick which point of view you argue. Um, and so, actually, my, my real perspective is that I think some regulation is probably quite important. Um, uh, but, we'll but you already it. voted, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you don't... You know, we accept that the state has the obligation to regulate what people... what TV stations can broadcast and what they can broadcast, but we think that the state shouldn't have the ability to... Um, regulate what you say if you're just shouting it on a street corner necessarily. Um, I think you have to draw the line somewhere in that. I'm not exactly sure where you draw that line and I'm not exactly sure how you draw that line. Um, we were assigned this side and this resolution <laughs> so that's, that's what I argued but in real life I'm not sure. I guess just to underline that point, it's an interesting position to be in where we principally concede that regulation to some extent is important, but it's that practicalities perspective of how exactly you hash that out and how you create it in a way that is fair, that doesn't create the unintended harms that we talked about in our speeches whilst protecting people that need protecting, as in that example. So, um, you know, I'm sure there's a panel of experts somewhere that could hash out the detail a bit better than we could. All right, thank you. And for the Nebraska team, perhaps you also shared a disclosure, uh, personal views. But um, won't a regulatory body be just another algorithm that the general public has no access to or understanding of? Who watches the Watchmen? So that is definitely a real concern. And I think one of the big issues with like fully disclosing those types of algorithms to the public is that those algorithms do contain like personal information because the reason that you get certain content on your Facebook feed is because of what you like, what you're interested in, where you're from, who you're Facebook friends with, etc. So you don't want that type of information just out in the open released to everyone. But I think going off of that, we hope that the government regulation that exists is not some type of partisan committee and there's like cooperation between the social media companies and the government, so a type of like joint oversight between each other. Thank you. To the British team, which do you feel is more effective at reaching a large audience, a larger audience, real news or fake news? Well, it's the, it's the Mark Twain line, right? <laughs> you know, the truth, the, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth has its socks on. Um, I'm not sure in that I think 
I think there is something inherent that people don't like to believe that the news that they're reading is fake. Um, people don't want their news sources to be seen as untrustworthy or people to think that what they're reading is untrustworthy. Um, but people simultaneously want to read things that they are pre-inclined to believe. So people, they want to believe that you know, climate change is made up and it's not gonna affect them even if the truth is that it is very real and it definitely is going to affect them. Um, so my long-winded, complicated answer is that I don't know. <laughs> to the Nebraska team, was the recent tension with North Korea a foregone conclusion or was it instigated by our, the president's social media posts? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would say that what's really important about this question is that it's not a foregone conclusion yet whether or not we continue aggression. So I don't know for sure counterfactuals as to whether or not there would be aggression or non-aggression if we hadn't have had Twitter. But what's really important for us as a public right now is to like really convey how important it is that our government doesn't act in aggressive ways against North Korea right now. Because one of the things I'm seeing that's really worrying is people just feeling that it's an inevitability and not really thinking about the consequences that such a conflict could have. Like, I don't want to see Seoul and Tokyo leveled because of complacency in terms of, well, it's, you know, a foregone conclusion. So I think that, I don't know the answer to the counterfactual, but I think that we need to take a stance against further aggression, like right now, to make sure it doesn't continue. <laughs> For the British team, how does protection of children and minors work regarding social media as this audience grows? I mean, I think that's a really important, really difficult question to answer. I think there certainly is regulation needed to protect minors and children on social media. Um, how, what, what exactly that looks like, I don't know right now, but that seems a pretty important group that need regulation. I definitely think it's hard to know because there is a generational difference. And I've talked, to, um, I've talked to one or two of my old teachers in school and they've definitely noted that it's a generational difference and that the you know, people reaching, you know, going through um, growing up as a teenager and as a young person have had social media as a constant background in their life and had it expected that you would take part in social media whereas we didn't. I didn't get a Facebook account until I was 16. Um, and that's, it's, it's hard to know the effects of that as, a, as someone who hasn't had that experience. All right, thank you to the Nebraska team. Isn't all news effectively or, or any story biased to the person writing the news or telling the story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think like what we tried to convey in our speech is that Yes, news will inherently be biased in many cases. Um, it involves who the reporter is talking to, um, what story they want to cover, the angle that they're trying to take. Um, so this, like the news that we read is biased, like what populations they're ignoring. That's a problem, but there's a difference between a story that takes one specific angle 
and something that is objectively misleading. So that was what we tried to convey. Thank you. To the British team, assuming an objective truth is possible, why should we feel comfortable with government or big business determining it for us as proposed in the debate? Was that at us? <laughs> so, to the British team, so knowing think, how they really feel. I think it is, it, assuming that an objective truth exists, I think it's too big a bur burden to place on any individual person to say that every one individual person has to do all the research and reading and c compile all the knowledge necessary to be aware of that. I think at some point, some external person or external body or something is going to impart knowledge onto you or is going to um, inform you of things you would not otherwise be informed of. Um, who that, what that external body is is a matter for debate, but I don't think, I don't think it's realistic to say that people can do all the work themselves. I also think I probably agree with what um, was just said about truth not being objective and then given that, that different governments might have different views on quite controversial issues, that's why it is something that is really important to have proper accountability and challenge for in terms of how we let governments determine what's right and what's wrong and what should be allowed and what we can't discuss. All right, thank you. Uh, to the Nebraska team. Do you think creating an organization, perhaps like the FCC, um, would help with creating fair regulations? And if so, how would you go about that? In relation to social media, I think it would be a good precedent to fit it within current regulatory regimes, because if we hastily put together um, new organizations to do what is essentially the job of like the FCC, then it's just going to create a more complicated process. And I think that, you know, regulations can be good, but they're only good insofar as they're effective. And they're effective if they're, you know, done by organizations that know what they're doing. And as, insofar as the FCC and other federal organizations have shown that they know what they're doing in relation to regulating other media companies, I think that we should just add to the list of duties of those um, federal agencies like social media. And going off of that, I think that perception is really important here too. And like the FCC isn't seen, in my opinion, as particularly partisan. Um, I think creating a new body in this political climate specifically to regulate social media sites, that this is a really contested issue. I think that would be seen as incredibly partisan and would cause a lot of like lack of trust in the body and that could be really problematic as well. All right, thank you. Before we uh, take the final question, I'd like to remind you each to mark your calendars for the next Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. It will feature a conversation with Misty Copeland. Please join us on February 13th at 7 p.m. here in Lincoln at Kimball Recital Hall. Um, and our last question, um, after I thank you again for coming all the way across the pond and, and from the UNL team as well. Um, I would like you to give us your perspective and or predictions on the future of social media. What was that, sorry, our perspectives on the- Perspectives and or predictions on the future of social media. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I think that there will be some regulation. I think that there's sufficient political capital about 
the influence of Russia on the elections in the States, that there is going to be a demand from the um, electorate to see something done, see some tangible change in terms of how media, uh, social media is regulated. But what I think is really interesting is that there has been a simultaneous push towards some kind of regulation as there has been a push from social media companies themselves to put forward a list of ideas so like mark zuckerberg did a list of things that he could see as being tangible changes so like including the ad revenue including the source of the advertising and stuff like that i expect what will probably happen is that there'll be a conversation between government and social media an agreement between them about measures that are imposed a number of statutory reporting requirements but i think the process is necessarily going to be iterative um, because there are just so many complexities in terms of how conversations happen how do you define fake news etc because of all the really interesting questions we've had about like objective truth and how minorities get represented and stuff so i think we're going to get regulation um, and i think social media companies are going to support it because i think they have to because they have to show that they're really embracing this challenge um, but I think there will be a backlash to it because I think it won't be perfect first time round and we'll maybe get to where we need to be within a few years um, yeah I agree with all of that I think definitely in terms of a time frame I would expect because all these companies are US based and a lot of this conversation is US driven I would expect a lot of that regulation to be finalised by 2020 um, and whatever that election ends up looking like I think we're going to have broad conversations about these issues again. I would say the other issue that is completely different to this debate but that I think is going to become a big one and there's going to be more news stories involving it is um, the connection between people's online identity and people's um, I IRL identity because I notice a lot of my peer group and a lot of my friends um, whether they're working as lawyers or whether they're working as teachers or whatever field they're in, they, they've changed their names on Facebook to be not their real name. And they're using usernames or aliases on um, tw Twitter and Facebook and things because they don't want to be Googled. They don't want to be found. Um, I think that's a really interesting conversation as to how that relates to your ability to get jobs and your ability to be a public person in the public sphere. We will eventually get to a point where the person who becomes the president will have put out you know, badly worded tweets at the age of 16. Um, I think that's a world, well, it may be the world we're already living in, but um, it will eventually be the world that we live in. And I think the transition into that being the world we live in is going to be very interesting. Thank you. From Team Nebraska. Um, just on a more optimistic note, I'm also really excited about the use of social media, specifically in politics. Um, while it seems for my political life that social media has been there for all of it, it's really, really new and there's a lot of campaigns here in Nebraska and across the country that are using social media in really exciting and interesting ways to engage with new populations and just their voter base in ways that I think even after this past election are really, really unique and I think that will continue to change. And we may see more and more engagement between elected officials or candidates and their constituents on social media. So politicians and candidates using social media in an appropriate way is very exciting. To quote our brilliant British colleagues, I don't know. <laughs> um, honestly, I'll agree with what everything else was said. The only thing that I'll add is that our answers aren't fixed. 
because the technology isn't fixed and neither is our society. So I think we probably need to keep checking in on this issue as often as we need to to make sure that we're being responsive to the times. All right, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for attending the Wilson Dialogue.